Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. We're winding down on this series. Um, as, you, as you see the season hopefully changing, it's still been 100 degrees about every day, but as you see the, the season can, starting to change, we're seeing that the series is, is winding down. As we start the year, we're going to be jumping into a new series, but I am more than excited. I, I can't explain. I'm more than excited about this week and our last week next week as it pertains to this series. As we started with God and we kind of walk through what it means to engage with God, and, and now in this series we're getting to this place of what is our response to who God is and what God has done. It is no more apparent to me that God has more work to do and it will work through us as we continue to give it over to him. As we continue to respond, as we continue to say yes, and as we continue to open the door to allow the Spirit to speak to each one of us. You might wonder why this plant is up here on the platform. Let me just say this isn't just a storage area for some of our, um, I'll say struggling plants. This one is not doing well. It needs to be pruned. It needs somebody with a green thumb to to help it out a little bit. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, Jesus's maybe green thumb accomplishments, or at least one of them. Specifically, as I look at my green thumb accomplishments, I can tell you the short list. Um, Basically, it starts with, um, there isn't any, and that's the end, right? I do remember a specific story about uh, a green thumb moment that um, my parents had, and I won't give you the exact names, but there were people that were involved in this specific engagement. My parents had bought a house um, a new house uh, to them, but was not new. Uh, it wasn't newly built. It had been there a while, and so it had some uh, vegetation. It had some um, some landscaping already, and there was a specific uh, plant that was planted very close to the edge of their garage. It was a detached garage. It was between the driveway and the garage, and it seemed like every year this plant would get larger and larger and larger. Now, it was pretty. It was a pretty plant. It had pretty flowers on it, but it would get larger and larger, and it would over, uh, overgrow the drive, and it would get in the way of the cars. And so eventually, my dad asked uh, a couple of other people who will remain nameless. I am not one of them, so I'm just going to let you know right now, to try to get rid of this specific plant, which if you know anything about plants, it was called a trumpet vine. And for whatever reason, this plant decided that it was rooted deeply and it was going nowhere. And so the people that my dad had brought in as uh, kind of the muscle to get rid of this plant started first, the first year, by attempting to simply cut it off and pull out the stump or the roots. The next year, it was as if the trumpet vine came up and gave a little do-do-do-do, I'm still here, right? It came out again, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And so that year, they decided, okay, well, let's cut off its source. And they decided to pour some gasoline on the plant. They didn't set the garage on fire. I know some of you are holding your breath. But they tried to burn it up, and the next year, it came back again. Needless to say, my parents lived there for 12 years, and after 12 different failed attempts, that plant still is there, and we still, when we drive by, when I am uh, back in town, uh, my parents moved away from that home to a new one, and when we drive by that home, that plant is still rooted there 
in that place. Jesus had a different way of going about eliminating a plant when he didn't want it to be there or when he had a frustration or a concern with it. His way much more effective. In fact, he used supernatural powers, which uh, were not available at the hardware store when we were looking for some kind of a, a poison. But instead, when he saw a plant, we recognized a plant that had no fruit on it, he spoke to the plant and the plant responded to him. Today, we're going to talk specifically about good works and gifts of the Spirit. And I, I, I know right now you're wondering, what does that have to do with a plant? What does that have to do with the fig tree that Jesus spoke to? And I will tell you, it has more to do with it than you might expect. From the Wesleyan Church Discipline, we believe in good works. In fact, it says, we believe that although good works cannot save us from our sins or from God's judgment, we are the fruit, they are the fruit of faith and follow after regeneration. Right there, rightly worded, rightly ordered, we find the importance of good works. We believe that although good works cannot save us from our sins or from God's judgment, they are the fruit of faith and follow after regeneration. Therefore, they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, and by them a living faith may be an evidently known, as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruit. So looking at good works, we recognize that fruit alone is not, is not necessarily the, the, uh, the, the way in which we somehow, quote, earn our salvation. Instead, it's a means to be able to justify or to be able to identify, I should say, that there is some sort of change within one's life. The second one that we're talking about is the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself, and He is to be desired more than the gifts of the Spirit, which He, which he in His wise counsel, bestows upon individual members of the church to enable them properly to fulfill their function as members of the body of Christ. So in many cases, when we do good works, we engage in a good work, we do so by using the gifts that the Spirit has given us, recognizing that the Spirit is in those gifts. The gifts of the Spirit, although not always identifiable with natural abilities, function through them for the edification of the whole church. These gifts are to be exercised in love under the administration of the Lord of the church, not through human volition. The relative value of the gifts of the Spirit is to be tested by the usefulness in the church and not by the ecstasy produced in one's receiving them. In essence, in short, the gifts are for the church, the gifts are to glorify God, and they're not about me. They're not about you. Ultimately, as we look at where we're going today and what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the concepts of being and doing. In fact, if you're following along in your note guide, the first one is, the first point is this, doing is the result of being when we talk about it in spiritual context. What these two implements that we just read from uh, the Wesleyan discipline would indicate and what we're going to read about today as we read about what God uh, or what Jesus did as he engaged in earth is that when we, what we do, what we do spiritually is an indication of what's in our heart. What we do reveals who we are. When we recognize a teacher or an electrician or a professional bowler, we recognize who they are by what they do, right? That is what they do, therefore indicating who they are. They're defined by who they are. 
Our priorities, our values, our desires, what consumes us is who we are. This is that understanding the nature and the purpose of the gifts that God gives us helps us to understand how we're supposed to use them. If we know why God gave us a gift, if we know what we're supposed to do with it, then we know how to engage it, how to use it, how to use it to glorify Him, and in what nature we're supposed to do so. Likewise, recognizing the purpose and power of good works helps us to calibrate why and how we engage our gifts. So we engage in, in good works because we have gifts and we use those gifts because we want to glorify God. The use of our gifts and the action of the good works reveals who we are as Christ followers. So let's talk about briefly the righteousness or the righteous acts of Jesus. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. And as we look at this, I just want to briefly give kind of a, a, an overall look at what this passage is all about. So Mark is, is attempting here to try to, to spell out a, the reality of the importance of what it means to be a fruitful Christ follower right? He's saying, okay, here's how we're supposed to act. It goes beyond just the things that we do, but it comes from our heart. It comes from our our internal being. It comes from who we are. Now, you might look at this passage, if you've read it before, and we're going to read it in just a moment. If you might look at this passage, you wonder, man, Jesus is, he's pretty angry. He's pretty frustrated. This isn't that loving Jesus that I typically would hear about. This isn't that loving Jesus that, 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 uh, you know, that, that loves children and that would, would touch people and heal them and, and give a blessing. What, what's going on here? Why is Jesus so upset? Why is he so mad? We're going to look at that. We're going to talk about that. But I think it might be even better to, to recognize the fact that his anger is directed towards something that he sees as a major issue within the church at that time and still even continues to this day. And that is that the religious leaders or those that might be, uh, that, that might be versed in the word are not necessarily living it. Instead, they have, they're living it, but they're not, they're not holding it. They're not, they're not, it's not who they are. It's not been allowed to transform them. They're just going through the motions. And so maybe even better, this passage could be considered or called Jesus wipes the robbers, uh, Jesus wipes the robbers and, and withers the roots. Starting in verse 12, it reads like this, the next day, this is after his, his, his entry, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now here's, right here's an indicator, and I don't know if you get this way or not. Why is Jesus angry? He, he's, he's probably, and in this case, originating uh, or starting this word hangry. Anybody ever heard the word before? You're hungry and you're angry at the same time and your anger comes from your hunger. So he's leaving Bethany and Jesus was hungry. Mark made it a point to put this in here. Seeing in the distance a fig tree or fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if any, if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, so this is an extremely strange passage. So Jesus is hungry. It is out of season. It is springtime because we know that the Passover is to take place. Jesus is hungry. And so he sees a fig tree that typically would not have fruit on it. As he sees the fig tree, he walks towards it. As he gets closer, he recognizes there is no fruit on the tree He looks at the tree, gets mad at the tree, curses the tree. And then my favorite part is that Mark had to actually put this in here and his disciples heard him him say it. 
Meaning, yeah, it really happened. There were witnesses there. There were people that heard this. It's like when that child comes and they tattle on someone and say, well, I heard him say it, right? And then his disciples heard him say it. And we look at this tree right here, and I, I recognize that, that we're, we're out of season. This is, this is late summer at this point, so it's not the same season. So if this was one that would have buds on it, which I don't see any right now, um, we're, we're past that. Uh, this has been outside, and so the weather has, has uh, brought it to the fruition, I guess, of where it's going to be. But a fruit tree with no fruit has no purpose. And so as we look at a specific tree uh, that's supposed to bear fruit, if it has no fruit, it has no purpose. And Jesus recognized that. He knew that even though it was out of season. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. In my backyard, we, we have a, an, an ornamental cherry tree. It's, it's a volunteer. We didn't plant it, and it's there. And I, as I look at it, I, I think, man, that's a really pretty tree. And I remember walking by it just a few weeks ago with my, with my sons, both of them. And we're looking at the different trees, and my son says, Dad, what kind of tree is that? And I said, well, that's a cherry tree. And his eyes got huge. Wow, we have a cherry tree in our backyard. This is great. Let's gather up the cherries. I said, son, you're not going to want to eat those. They're really sour. They're not good. And then I heard him under his breath to his brother say, well, what's the point? <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, yeah, you're right. Yeah. What's the point? Why, why have a cherry tree that doesn't, I mean, it's beautiful. I'll say that. But why have a cherry tree that's supposed to bear fruit that doesn't have fruit? And the point is this, the purpose of the believer is discovered through the bearing of fruit. Our purpose is revealed through our engagement in the mission of the gospel. I got two uh, photos here. The first one is, I'll let you write that down before we skip to those. Five, four, three, two, just kidding, I'm sorry. Let's go ahead and put that first one up there. I've got two photos here. So this, this is a, an actual fig tree, a photo of an actual fig tree <clears throat> in the springtime. It's a little bit later in spring. And you see there are some little green figs on there. So when we look at it uh, in, in leaf, so to speak, as Mark would translate or Mark writes here, we recognize that in leaf also indicates that there are some, quote, starter fruit on the tree. And those are edible, while they might not be as delicious or as fulfilling, those are edible. And Jesus knew, hey, there are some, there are some fruit that should be on here while it won't be all the way out and won't be as luscious as it will be in several months. I'm going to go, I'm going to pick some of these small fruits that would have looked like that, and I'm going to eat these to basically satisfy my hunger as I go about my business for the day. And so as we look at this and we see this, we recognize the fact that there was to be fruit on this tree, though it was young, though it may have been out of season, there was to be fruit. And the second picture is, is this. This is actually that, the one right there in the middle is a fully developed fig. So you see the small uh, green fig there on the left, it gets to that, and then eventually, I think the only thing you do with figs is put them in a Newton. So then you take it and you mash it up, you put it in one of those gross cookies, and then you have those, right? And so you have the, the fig here, and you have this, this nice, luscious fruit. That's where it would be if if it was in season, right? And so at this point, Jesus comes along, he sees it, he recognizes that the fruit is, is not there, there's not going to be any fruit because there's no starters, there's no blooms, there's nothing else. And so he recognizes this tree is at that point, a fruit tree is worthless. Jesus reveals the example by which we are to live, not to, to be glorified, but to humbly do so, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel in a lot of ways because this nation of Israel represented the old way, the old guard, the way that things were done under the old covenant. 
Now, this was his chosen nation, but he recognizes that at a certain point, there's this expansion to come through his actions to come. The fruit of the tree is to make his point, the recognition of the fact that there's a different way of doing it. It's not fig season. There's, there should be small figs on there. And, and at this point, should you want to, you could eat the figs off of the tree if they would have been there, even though they would have been small. Scripture says that one should cut down those trees. Matter of fact, this is John the Baptist's words, and we, we actually read them last week. John the Baptist's words in Mark chapter 3, uh, that you should cut down that tree with an axe and replace it with a fruitful one. Let me just say, this doesn't mean that if there's no fruit that the person should be cut down and eliminated. That's not what the, what the passage is saying. Instead, what it's saying is to make new space. We're talking about a covenant here, to make new space for the next thing that God wants to do through the person of Jesus. If you have a tree that doesn't produce fruit, you remove it for a new one that does. That's the new covenant. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 14, it starts like this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then jumping down to verse 26, it says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead as well. Again, the purpose of the believer is discovered through the bearing of fruits. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you follow Jesus under the new covenant of recognizing his sacrifice for us, it's not about following rules, but it's about indicating and, or it's about showing and revealing his truth through our good works and through the gifts he gives us. In Mark chapter 15, it reads like this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they, they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. We're going to pause there for a minute. Jesus embraced the issues. He cleansed the temple. Now, the temple issues were, were basically this. There were, there were those that were using the temple and using the opportunity to be able to jack up the price, so to speak, for sacrifices. They recognized that people needed a sacrifice to be able to rightly worship God. And so what they were doing was they would, they would, they would see the person coming and they would make a price that would basically wipe that person out so they could take all of their money so that they might be able to worship by, through sacrifice. This isn't about a church bake sale. This is, has everything to do with the fact that there were people there that were keeping others. They were standing in the way of others being able to experience a time of engagement, of intimacy with God. It wasn't legalistic at all. In, in fact, it was, it, was, it was the opposite. It was, it was them blocking the gospel message. It was them blocking the truth. It was them blocking the opportunity for people to grow in their faith. 
Many were using the temple as a place of personal gain to exploit the poor. A noisy, smelly marketplace where religious leaders were interfering with God's provision. In fact, because they took advantage of the people and because they robbed the temple of its sanity, of, of its sanctity, I should say, the temple must be cleansed. And, and symbolically, this is the, the, the neatest part uh, of this passage so far, symbolically Christ's ultimate goal of cleansing was for each individual heart. He was cleaning out the temple, the temple physically, literally. But at the same time, he was symbolically showing each person there and everyone who is an onlooker of this passage that he will clean out the temple, the, the internal temple of each individual that comes to him. That's what he does. He eliminates all the filth, all the darkness, all the sin, all the things that we hold on to that are contrary to him. He, put, he, he cleans all of that out so that he might dwell within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. This is a metaphor for the coming act of salvation. You know, humans live in sin and without his cleansing engagement, we are, we are obstructed from experiencing righteousness with the Father. But Jesus' one act, one action here of, 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 of showing that he has the power and the authority to do so reveals that he is the way. As a result, only he can deliver through the cross and resurrection. You know, we can't earn righteousness we can't earn righteousness through our good works, through using our gifts. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to earn it or for us to do anything. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the person of Jesus. The point is this. Jesus is the cleanser of all unrighteousness. Jesus is the one who makes all things new. He's the one that transforms. He's the one that makes the, 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 the fallen, the broken, new and fresh and real. In short, our salvation experience or our conversion moment, the time in which we finally open the door and allow Jesus to infill us and indwell within us, is only made possible through the merciful act of our Savior. We can do nothing to achieve this result. In fact, the way that that was spelled out earlier is the achievements or the things that we do are a response to what God has done in our life, not a means to try to earn His favor. What we have is not even for our own gain. And I know right now you're saying, okay, Steve, earlier you just said faith without works is dead. So obviously we're supposed to do something. Yes, we are. It's an indicator of our faith. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul wrote to Titus while he was serving the churches of Crete. And it says like this, chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-righteous, uh, self-controlled, unright and upright, excuse me, and godly lives in this present age. So here we see to begin with is that God appears, he brings salvation and then teaches us to live differently. Once I had a person tell me, well, I need to kick this one habit and then I'll go to God. No, that's not how it works. God says, come to me first, and then I will take that. I will, I will eliminate that. I will bring forth, as you continue to say yes to me, I will bring forth a new day for you. You come as you are. You don't stay as you are, but you come as you are. The passage continues. It says, while we wait for the blessing of hope and appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are, very, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So it starts with God's salvation through Jesus. 
moves into this teaching moment, and then also gives us opportunity to be able to eager to do what is good. Salvation first and then live rightly is a result of that. Several years ago, I remember walking down the steps in, uh, in a house uh, that Shree and I lived in, in in South Dakota. And as we got to the, as I got to the bottom step, I remember stepping down and onto the carpet and getting kind of one of those squishy feelings. Anybody ever had that before? It's not a great feeling. Not a great feeling. There's not supposed to be a swimming pool in your basement. And so I get to the bottom and I step on that squishy feeling and I look around. I recognize there's a leak that has taken place in our basement. And it wasn't really bad at that point. And so I was thankful uh, that it hadn't spread too much. It hadn't made, uh, created too much damage. And as I, as I surveyed the area, the first thing I did was how do we stop the leak, right? There's an order to which you do things. How do we stop the leak first? How do we make this right first? How, what do we do to fix this thing first before we worry about the water that's on the ground? And that's in essence, what, what God is saying, let me make you right first, and then all these other peripheral things will come into motion. All of them will come into view. Your lens by which you view the issues in your life will change because of what I want to do in you. And so God says, let me stop the leak. Let me change. Let me fix the brokenness first. And as a result, once you're done with that, then we can look at these other things. We can move from there. Remember that fig tree we talked about earlier? Anybody remember? Now, this is our representation of a fig tree. It's not looking too bad. I think, I think we're doing okay. It hasn't withered yet. I didn't actually curse it, and I don't think I had the power to, to change it anyway. But picking back up in verse 20, it reads like this. In the morning, as they, were along, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the root. So the, the, the previous day, Jesus had had this chat with the, with the tree, like, look, if you're not going to give me any fruit, be gone, right? And then he went about his business as anybody would, whipping people in a temple, right? Anybody? We've all had those days, right? Somebody tried to offer him a fig newton. That's probably why he was so upset. And, and then the next day, he gets up and he's on his way and they see the tree again. And we're back to this. And it's interesting that this other passage of cleansing is sandwiched between this concept of recognizing a new covenant through the, the, the symbology of this tree. It says in verse 20, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, that would have made an impression on anybody. Obviously, they'd seen the, the miracles and the healing and all the different things that Jesus had done. But man, he even, he even can tell vegetation to, to, to wither, to die, right? Verse 20, here it says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This passage makes the impossible possible. 
This passage looks at faith and ends in forgiveness. This passage starts with a physical thing that you see, a tree right here, an external thing, and transforms it into an internal humility, a posture, recognizing what Jesus says is it's not about your righteousness or what you earn or being obedient anymore, but instead this new covenant I provide starts inside you. Jesus is taking what was seen and understood, righteousness through obedience and piety, and is providing a new way, a righteousness through relationship with him. Now, don't get me wrong. Good works and spiritual gifts have a purpose. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it reads like this. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in kinds, different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And in verse 11, all these are the works of the one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Sounds like unity to me. Sounds like one purpose to me. And in fact, in that last passage when it talks about forgiveness of one another, it's this engagement together, right? It's this body recognizing that, that God intended for us as a body to serve not for ourselves or our own gain, but instead for his glory and together. Jumping down to verse 27, it says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. I'm a, I'm a college football fan. I enjoy watching uh, college football. And, and, and I remember vividly the, 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 tw- the 2002 season when Ohio State went undefeated and they won the national championship. And I remember specifically before the championship game when they give out all the trophies, right, to all the individuals throughout the year, that there were two players on the team that we, Ohio State, I say we because uh, I, I, apparently I had a lot to do with the team, but uh, that we were going to play, which was the Miami Hurricanes. There were two players that, had, uh, that, had, that were in the final four, so to speak, of those that were going to be invited to win the Heisman Trophy, the, the MVP of all of college football for the year. And that was uh, Willis McGahee and that was Ken Dorsey, their quarterback and their, one of their starting running backs. And, and so these two guys were, were being interviewed and they were talking about, man, wouldn't it be great if you won? How neat is this? and then we're going to win the championship and talk about all these things. And I remember them, they were interviewing the offensive line later on in the day. And I remember watching just a part of it. And one of the guys said, maybe we should break an arm off for me and a leg of the trophy off for this guy. And we should all do this and, and we should all get a part of the trophy. And I remember thinking, you know what? You're right. You're right. And I, let me just say that there are players that contribute more in sports. But let me say in the kingdom, in the kingdom, we contribute what God gives us to do. It is a team sport. It is a team activity. It is a team engagement for us as believers to step forward as one body to use the gifts that God has given us. No one is more valuable than anyone else. And I don't really like individual accolades that go for a team sport because what it does, it says you're more important than this person. And that's not the case, especially in the kingdom. God has a purpose and a plan for each individual to operate within the kingdom of God together, the body. There's two main keys right now to look at. Good works are to glorify God and to build his kingdom, not to earn anything. 
And gifts are from God for the body, not for one person to wield over everyone else. Instead, God is the giver of gifts and the greatest gifts. So this fig tree right here, just kind of refresh for a moment. Jesus came, he cursed the tree. He was supposed to get some fruit off of it. There wasn't any. The next day he comes back. The disciples pointed out it has withered. Things have gone bad for this thing. What is happening now? Let's just look for just a moment. He's not condemning it to death. He's not making, uh, you know, a, a, a casting dispersion on it to get rid of it. Instead, what he's doing, he's making room for something new. He's making room for something new that will bring forth a a, a fruit that is beyond anything that anyone else could imagine. Jesus is expressing what's about to happen through his life, death, and resurrection to the practice of Judaism and the new covenant, the new fruit to come for all people. In fact, he's combating something, and and he lives out the context outside of the confines of, of, of time, he's combating something that we know today as works righteousness or attempting to earn salvation, attempting to earn a good graces with God. What he's saying is, I want to have a relationship with you. And as I transform you, you do good things, you do good works, you use your gifts, but you don't do those in the front end to try to earn anything with me. I'm glad he doesn't look at us and say, okay, what can you do for me? I'm going to like you based upon the scale by which you can contribute to the kingdom. Because I don't know how much he'd like me. I don't know how much God would receive me or engage with me if, if he just chose to do so based upon what I could produce for him. No, without his perfect sacrifice, without the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, I think he would say, I can't be in your presence because you have sin." You have pride. No, it's not until we go through, we step forward and allow Jesus to change us, to transform us, that we can actually be in the presence of God and then 100% unleash the gifts and the good works that God wants to do in and through us. Jesus would bring a new way on the cross. God responds in verse 22 and 23, God responds to confident faith by making the impossible possible. He's also gracious to those who are weak. And ultimately, it's not about the action we do, but the posture we take most important in the decisions that we have, in the most important decision that we have. The point is this, humility is the posture by which we are to respond to the gospel. You know, when it comes to receiving Christ, when it comes to saying yes to Him, we do so with a humble posture. In many cases, we do so bowing down. We, we, we get down on a knee or we sit and, and we bow our head. We, 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 we position ourselves humbly before the God of all creation. And sometimes humility is necessary in using one's gifts. You know, today as we, as we conclude this service, I, I want to take a moment to encourage you to explore, to reflect upon your own life. Perhaps you've, you've attended church your whole life. Perhaps you're using your gifts. Perhaps you, you recognize what they are and you've been putting them into practice. Perhaps you, 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 you're just starting to kind of step into this. You don't know exactly what it is. Maybe today is the first time you've ever heard the gospel. It's the first time you've ever been to church and, and you're, you're kind of looking at it like, hey, you know what? I want this, uh, this new life. I, I don't want to try to earn it anymore because I'm getting so tired, but I really want to experience this new life, this rebirth. I, I'm not sure where, you're, where you are today, but I do know this. No matter what it 
it takes, no matter where you are, it starts with humility. It starts with us identifying that God is God and we are not. And perhaps God is asking for humility, maybe first in using your gifts. Maybe you're a teacher and you've been teaching a class for a long time here at the church or leading a group, or maybe you use your gifts in another area of the church or you're, you're on one of the boards or a committee or I don't know where, where you sit today or what you've been doing, but maybe, maybe you've been using that as an identifier. Well, I'm a board member, I'm a teacher. And God's saying, look, I want some humility. I want, I want you to step back from identifying yourself um, based on what you do and identify yourself in who you are, which is a follower of Jesus, a son or daughter of the Most High God. Maybe humility in the genesis of what it means to be saved. Maybe, maybe you have been, maybe you are tired. Maybe even trying to get on the good graces of God. And deep down as you look at it, you look at it deeply rooted in the, the, the why of, of what you do, serving others, maybe in a parachurch organization or here or, or whatever it might be. All the good things you do, you're doing them because you want to make God happy. You want to try to earn his good graces. And Satan's almost tricked you into thinking that that's what you do to earn your salvation. When in essence, what God is saying is, look, you don't have to do anything to start with. Just humbly before me, accept me as Savior, as Lord. You know what else humility is required for us? Humility is required to identify this personally. Humility is required to say, look, I know that, that, that I need God. I need his touch. Sometimes we can look at the people around us and say, well, my family or, or I grew up in the church or, or everybody else around me has it together. The group I'm involved in has it together. By association, we think we're okay. And once again, we see, okay, maybe there's some fruit coming out here or there, but it's, it's, it's produced or it's not necessarily in season or it's not large or, or maybe it's not there altogether. And the indicator there once again is, hey, you need to humbly before God, kneel. Say yes to him, give it to him. I think about that cherry tree in the backyard. I think about the the beautiful cherry blossoms, the, the ones that come along the bike trail on, on OU's campus, right? And I remember when we first got to town, I asked several people, and I still do, if you've got other, other things, let me know. But I asked several people, like, what are the, what are the things Athens is known for? And, and, and after having a, a hot dog at Larry's and, and uh, you know, kind of going to the fair, all these different types of things, the trees were another thing. It's like, man, you got to see these. They're so beautiful. And I remember going and seeing them the first time uh, that they were in season, the first time that we lived here, and seeing how gorgeous they were. But I can't help but think about the, the, the parallel or the, 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 the metaphor there of recognizing the beauty of those trees, cherry trees, with no fruit. And sometimes we can make it look good, right, in our own life. We can make it look like we got it all together. We can impress people with our, with our, our, our vocabulary and our, and our gifts and our talents and all the things that we know about Scripture. We can, we can impress people with how much work we do and how much we donate to the church or to other organizations. We can make it look so good. 
but no fruit. And once again, God's saying, humbly come before me. I want to give you something so much greater than what you're trying to give to me, than what you're trying to put on, than what you're trying to reveal. Perhaps you're living with a beautiful exterior, but no fruit. This morning, we're going to close singing a song, but at the same time, we're also going to close by hopefully responding. And you can respond in many different ways this morning. We'll have the altars will be open. They always are. You're welcome to come anytime you'd like to. And so there's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not like they're, they're, there's some switch that's been flipped on. Instead, this is a moment for you to come and to kneel. If today you, you recognize you need to humble yourself before God, whether it be to a first-time commitment to give your life to Him, whether it be, hey, you know what, I, I've been doing things and trying to earn His good favor, but I recognize God wants me just to simply bask in Him humbly. Maybe today there's just a need that's on your heart a personal need in your family or in your own life or, or in, in, in your, a life of a friend or a coworker, and you want to bring that before the Lord today, this is your moment. And I recognize this is that God gives us second chances, but I will tell you, doesn't mean that you have to miss the first one. And so if God is laying it upon your heart right now, if the Spirit is speaking to you in just a moment, I want to encourage you to come and to pray at this altar. And I'll come and pray alongside you if you would like that, or if you just want to pray in quiet by yourself and hear the Word of God, then you can do so as well. Hear the voice of God, you can do so as well. But this is a moment for you to engage with Him. So I want to encourage you to stand now as I pray. And then we're going to sing together, and we're going to pray together. And I want to encourage you to to, to respond as you feel led. Father, we thank you for your new covenant. We thank you for the fact that you have opened the door widely for all people, that this isn't simply, simply something for, for one group or, or a, a chosen tribe, but instead you have said yes to all of us and how you have revealed that to us through the, 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 the withering of, of a fig tree and the reality that you have something far greater for each one. I pray that we would hear your voice. I pray that we would respond to your voice. I pray that this would be a moment of reflection and humility before the King. Thank you, Father, in advance for who you are and for what you do. We just ask that you continue to move in this place and beyond. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Let's sit. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.